here we are. How you doing, boys? Good, my man. Glad yeah. to be here. Well, good to have you again. Got uh, Shamari Benton and Andrew Ganal uh, in the studio. No pressure at all, guys, but this will be the last episode of 2023 that, that airs. I'm sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I know. Well, I mean, this will probably air. I'll probably drop it the day after Christmas. So it'll be like a little Christmas treat for everybody. Right. The one, the one week where literally no one does anything. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so podcast, I expect. Except listen to podcasts. Exactly. To podcasts, right. Yeah. While they cook. Yeah. <laughs> I expect listenership to be, you know, way up, way up. Um, we wanted to get together and talk about a, a few things. Whoa, excuse me. Here going on in Kansas City and uh, especially related to development and planning. We, we all were having a conversation a, a two or three weeks ago related to parking that I thought was, it was really interesting. And I felt like, God, we ought to record that as a podcast because it was just a lot of different back and forth. I want to talk about that, um, but I don't want to start with parking. Um, so I'm going to start with something else just to throw you off a little bit. Keep, you on, keep you on your toes. Um, I was thinking about this just... Um, the other day, uh, actually like yesterday, and re- was thinking about our Columbus Park deal. Uh, a- Andrew and I are uh, two of three partners in a development project, uh, an infill project that includes 10 um, new townhomes that'll be for sale and 10 apartments for rent. Uh, and I was thinking about that project and, and this I'm going to apply this question first to Andrew, but the same question really goes to you, Shamari, which is, um, you know, this, this project has been a challenge. Uh, and I, I feel like the learning curve for doing it has been pretty steep in a lot of ways. We've had a lot of different kinds of things to wrestle with and overcome. Um, this is the first time Andrew's done a for sale, uh, project, uh, typically before that he's all done for rent. Um, so it's kind of a new world in terms of development. And it just kind of leads me to think when, when you go through a project like this, that's really so different than a lot of the other stuff that you've done. Do you feel like, boy, we learned a lot along the way. And now I really have to keep doing projects like this to apply the lessons I've learned and make it worth it. Or do you just take the other way and say, this has been way too hard. The other things that I do were easier and I would rather spend my time on that. And I guess with Shamari, when we get to you, it's kind of a similar deal. You've had two or three projects that are very complicated, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of preservation, a lot of layering of financing options in there. And it's kind of like you learn a lot through that process, but it's also really hard. Sure. Especially as, you know, we're all we're not rookies to development, but we're also not like 20, 30 year veterans of doing it. So I'm just curious, like what, what runs through your head when you think about that? You want it, you're you ready to jump on another townhouse project, Andrew? Like so many things, I think the answer is a bit of both, right? Yeah. Where it's the new projects are what keeps this business interesting. And part of what I love about development is every project does have its unique thing. So you're always learning. It's never just rote. Um, but it's also like, okay, I need to do some projects that might make some money as well. <laughs> and sometimes that's a little bit more of the tried and true, you know, what got you, what got you to the point you're at. 
Um, so I have no regrets and I do want to do more projects like this just because I see the demand is just, just off the charts for this kind of product. Uh, I do think it kind of gives you an appreciation sitting here in 2023, just how good those years were between let's call it 2013 and, and 2020. Um, there were a lot of, uh, tailwinds for the real estate industry that you maybe never thought about at the time. Um, but when equity was easy to come by, debt was relatively inexpensive you really kind of focus more on just execution. And now it's uh, you know, a combination of you gotta still execute, but where, what's the debt situation look like? What's the, what are the buyers gonna be bringing to the table? Mm -hmm. um, this made it a more complex project. Would you, would you think that, uh, has it surprised you the, the amount of work and the challenge on this project compared to your, cause the apartment projects you've done have been, um, not insubstantial, you know, 40, 50 units or more mixed use as well. So it's not like those are simple little projects is what has kind of surprised you about this one? Well, I think, I think you're, it really does drive home that every project has a certain amount of overhead, no matter what. Yeah. So the logic of the larger projects is, it's really hard to push against and being as passionate about infill and incremental development as, as all you guys, um, you know, you start to really understand why the bigger projects are the ones that the firms focus on, because no matter how small a project, there's just a certain amount of effort that goes with it that is unavoidable. Yeah. yeah. I used to, so my friend, John Anderson, used to always talk about the return on brain damage. Yeah. Basically. Right. And you know what uh, that, and that's exactly why people tend to, who've done it for a few years, tend to gravitate towards larger projects because you realize you're going to put the same amount of time in doing 300 apartments as you might as doing 12 uh, in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. And especially some of those smaller projects do actually require more work because to get the numbers to work, take that much more creativity and, and effort. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Shamara? You've had, I mean, your projects are really unique. Uh, and so many layers going on with different financing and historic preservation and, and everything else. Does it make you want to do, and it's been, and, and it, I mean, we've talked about it. It's not been easy. Um, it, Very difficult. It, yeah. It, it, you so like, um, 2000 vine is leased up now it, it's done. Um, vine street breweries doing great, but man, it was a struggle to get to that point. And does it make you like want to do more stuff like that? Or does it make you think about doing different kinds of projects? We're going to continue to do those projects. I think the motivation to do the projects is what allows me to say that. If it was strictly about the bottom line, if it was strictly about the dollars, the answer would be easy. It would be no. Yeah. Right. Um, it's definitely not a get rich quick scheme. <laughs> I think a lot of folks who are not in the space think that it's a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. That's why I laugh because it's, you hear that so much and, and people really have no idea for sure. Yeah. I think folks who are in the space need to be open and honest about that. And I think the narratives of developers particularly in this market would change at least for the folks who who are within our network smaller incremental developers folks who are tackling really difficult projects i think 
our projects differ in what you all are doing, what Andrew has done in the past in, in, in two ways. One is, or actually, Andrew, I, I was going to say yours were not historic rehab projects, but that's not completely true. You did have some historic rehab portions. But yeah, nothing close to what you guys pulled off. Right. So that has a whole nother layer of complexity. And I don't see, generally speaking, I don't see how you can get around the unpredictability of historic rehab. Mm -hmm. You have to bake it in to your pro forma and your approach. It's just unavoidable. Um, number two, at least for now, is we're not tackling residential. All of our projects relate to commercial, mm -hmm. whether it be retail, entertainment, office. They're all commercial, which, again, has a different layer um, than residential. I wouldn't say one is easier than the other, right. but they're different. And so without the passion to do these projects without knowing the incentive tools to bear, to have these projects completed. I don't know how it gets done. It's close to impossible. And you had referenced one example, the 2000 vine project in the, in the vine district. And for those non Kansas Cityans, that's, that's Kansas city's Harlem, if you will, it's mm -hmm. kind of the anchor of, of black Kansas city. It took a lot of work just to get to the point in which we are 90 some odd percent full on tenants. The project's not complete. We are moving into the last phase to, to finish out the outdoor space of the site. Site's a little over an acre. So we bought, we bought 2000 Vine, just to use an example, we bought 2000 Vine in 2017. Really got it fully leased up in 2021. And we're just now getting to the point where we're on the third phase to complete the outdoor space. Right. So I think people really have to understand the complexities of those type of projects, how long it takes, how patient you and your investors and your lenders and so on and so forth have to be when you're tackling something like this. It's not, again, going back to the original statement, it's definitely not a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. You have to have passion for it. You have to have patience. You have to have knowledge on on how to build a capital stack. How much, how much more do you think you know now about um, the capital stack part of it and and all of that compared to when you first looked at this in 2016, 2017? I mean, does it feel like you've developed a real skill set about having being able to put a project like that together that's complex and and has a lot of layers to it? On the incentive and finance side, is that yeah, what you're asking? that and, and even on the preservation side, because there's definitely uh, a unique aspect to working on a historic building, uh, and especially if you're getting historic tax credits, that sort of thing. So let me differentiate a little bit. 2000 Vine actually doesn't have historic tax credits. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. All right. We're utilizing historic tax credits for two of our other projects. Uh -huh. uh, the incentives that we used for 2000 Vine, I was fairly knowledgeable about, just given my practice. The historic tax credit piece on the other two projects, I've learned quite a bit about. Mm -hmm. We hired a, a local consultant, uh, Rosen, and 
going through that process with them, them holding our hand on this is what this looks like, difference between federal and state, what are the requirements, how you go out to the market to find parties to purchase tax credits, so on and so forth. That was eye opening to me. That was something I wasn't completely familiar with. Outside of that piece, I would say the financing part, just from a lending institution perspective, what they need to go to underwriting, et cetera, that was really eye-opening. Um, real estate attorneys, real estate development attorneys are really dealing with incentive tools. They're really dealing with city hall and statutes, ordinances, et cetera. Rarely are you dealing with the financing piece, at least in yeah. my practice previously. So uh, from a lawyer perspective and actually going into the space to, to develop, it's really helped me have a more global view of what it takes to get a project done. And I think that's helped me understand clients better, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, things that might not come up in a conversation when an attorney speaking to their client, but things that now I know that's in the background, like you're certainly dealing with X, Y, and Z. So that's been highly beneficial. Do you, uh, have you started applying a lens with that to look at other future projects yet? And what you have learned and are you looking for like the next project? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, as Andrew stated, yes and no. I, the three projects that we're tackling, some further along than others, need significant attention. Mm -hmm. We've been uh, blessed enough to have, to control land around those projects. Right. So I think if, if things fall uh, as we believe they will, I think we would look to develop the land around those projects at some point in time in the future. Okay. So that's maybe your next effort is really more maximizing what you already have. I think so. Yeah. And, and I would like to, again, if everything aligns, I think, I think I would like to look at, missing middle housing, mm -hmm. infill housing. That's me saying that with uh, our own naivety regarding regarding that space. But that would be that would be something that I think I would look forward to and that yeah. even understanding the difficulty, the things that I don't even know about trying to build missing, missing middle housing. Yeah, I think the passion there uh, could drive that through. And I think at the end of the day, the the demand for that in Kansas City is fairly high. Mm -hmm. So I think it could be a positive if you can get through some of those hurdles. Yeah. So, Andrew, I've get, I know you're ready to jump in. I want to ask you something first. Um, on So on like the townhouse project, I mean, your background was finance. Uh, uh, and so I'm just curious, what has been like similar or different on the finance and the legal front? Some of the things that Shamari was just talking about relative to doing a for sale project versus doing for rent? I think the single biggest difference would just be when you're doing it for rent, it's going to be one owner at the end of the day. And so it's kind of makes sense for one, if it's one parcel, it's one building typically, or it could be multiple buildings. Um, with the for sale, you know, you are talking about subdivision, platting, what multiple different buyers are going to be looking for. Um, 
And I think that does add a lot of complexity to the, to the early upfront development process. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's true. It's interesting. I've kind of talked about with Shamari and some of our other friends that, you know, we did, we did overcomplicate the project by our own choice. And it, it's interesting now that we're this far into it and, and it's, everything is uh, going vertical now uh, at last, which is great from a construction standpoint, but it's kind of interesting to look back and, and think, boy, if, what would we do differently knowing everything that we know right now? It's hard to say because the whole industry is definitely going mixed use, right? Yeah. I think people recognize the value of that as a concept that there's, uh, you know, what is it? Peanut butter and jelly go better together than on their own, <laughs> even if it's a little more complicated. Um, and it's kind of waiting for some of the financing and some of the other uh, accoutrements in the industry mm -hmm. to catch up to that reality. So I guess don't see your, I mean, you're still seeing some of these kind of strip mall just one story retail type shopping centers, but fewer and fewer, right? Yeah. Many people are realizing that the the future is mixing that retail and commercial with the residential. Yeah. Um, I mean, downtowns that are all in on commercial are hurting really mm -hmm. badly right now. Yeah. Uh, Kansas City, I think, made a pretty smart decision about 15 years ago to say, we're going to bring residential to downtown. And that's helped. Uh, and all those residential people walking around every day has helped keep some degree of uh, liveliness down there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it, um, it's fascinating because on our, our deal, we mixed for sale and for rent in the same project. And just kind of now looking back where we are, we can see that, um, you know, it, everybody along the way had a hard time with that. So whether it mm -hmm. was the city from a permitting standpoint and a review standpoint really struggled with it. Uh, the contractors struggled with uh, how to price it appropriately. The lenders had a hard time with it. Uh, it's just not how the industry is set up yeah, at the moment. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So uh, uh, it's the neighborhood loved it, right? right I mean, exactly. I think the, and I kind of, you know, going back to some of what Shamari was saying, that there's like two archetypical projects in my mind. There's where you kind of have the end in mind, right? I'm going to build infill apartments and maybe there'll be some ground floor commercial or there, and then it's just about executing on that vision. Or there's, you know, we had this really cool building in a part of town that I want to be. What can we do with it? Yeah. And I, uh, so I, I applaud the latter, but I can see where people could get in trouble there if you don't have a pretty clear end goal of where is that revenue going to come from at the end of the day? Yeah. Because if you don't have a clear picture of what revenue is there, how do you know how much you can spend? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And it's funny with, you know, my background is on the design side and architecture and obviously, you know, most of us as architects, we're, we're kind of uh, educated and probably inclined to want everything, every project we do to be like its own unique little jewel box. And, uh, and, and we love that because you love the idea of creating something special every time. Um, but the, when you actually get on the development side, you realize that uh, you you begin to understand the incredible value, especially with new construction, of uh, repetition, uh, especially on the for sale side, because the margins are tight, uh, the risk is high, and the more that you can uh, set up something that's repetition uh, and really know everything that you're doing down to the penny, that's how you actually make money in building, especially new for sale product. Uh, and, um, it, it's, it's just a funny thing how, how that kind of comes in conflict with your own nature as a designer to want, 
uh, everything to be unique and, and wonderful. But you had referenced, if you had to do it over again, given the lessons that you've learned, you would apply those to future projects. If you're willing to share what, what would be one of those one or two? Well, I mean, it'd be fun, be fun to see if Andrew agrees or disagrees with me, but there's no doubt that the, uh, we added a lot of complexity by having for sale and for rent together. And we, throughout the course of the design effort, we talked about not doing that. We talked about going all for rent. We talked about going all for sale. Um, and I, from a design standpoint and from a neighborhood standpoint, I like where we ended up. Uh, from a develop, from a peer development, like a, if we we're being ruthless developers, we would not have done it that way. Uh, a, a ruthless bottom line development, I think you would have just gone one way or the other and, and stuck with that because it really did make uh, every step harder and more expensive. Uh, so that that's one thing. The nature of our site, we had also talked at one point that it would have been really cool if we could have uh, phased the construction of the site um, because it's just, a, just about an acre and uh, it, it's a lot of risk to take on at one time. When you're building ten units at once and you have to sell them all, which which has not been done in this neighborhood uh, in many 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 years. So, but the nature of our site and all of the infrastructure that we had to pour into it, uh, all new stormwater, underground stormwater systems, new water lines, you know, new everything, new um, alleyways. Uh, I don't know how we could have faced it uh, and done that successfully. I think. It really, the nature of this particular site lent itself towards really having to build it all at once. Uh, I wish we could have found a way to phase it in two phases. And uh, I, I think uh, a typical home builder probably would have said, we're just going to build 15 to 20 townhomes on this site. I'm going to uh, build four to six the first time. We're going to see how those sell. And then we're going to build batches as we go. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure how we could have pulled that off uh, on this project. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you. Um, that being said, I, I think the site and the neighborhood kind of dictated the direction we had to go. And, and the next time it would be easier, right? I mean, if yeah. only thing I would change differently in retrospect would just be a lot more time, right? Yeah. We needed more time to develop that internal capability, but you know, now we we have HOA docs ready to go. We know what to look for in terms of utilities. I mean, just just an awful lot of learning on the project. So hopefully, we can put that to use in other projects. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, what would you do differently on your projects, Shamari? Again, I'm not I'm not sure. Most of the hurdles we ran into would have been circumvented with better planning. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our issues are baked into the type of buildings we decided to rehab, the historic nature of it, the length of time in which they sat empty. It's just naturally going to create issues with the rehabilitation. So I, I just, I don't, I don't foresee the ability to, consistently foresee some of those issues and each building is going to, it's, 
it's going to be different. Uh, the only similarity is that you know it's you know those problems are going to exist in some form or fashion. I suppose. I suppose one thing that has bubbled up that I think we'll tackle differently moving forward is working more in line with our investor groups, getting some concepts and ideas from, from those groups, from those individuals, and aligning that with kind of what we're thinking as developers. Mm -hmm. Not that, not that that has been a huge issue, but I do think in some regards, getting more voices onto the table can help avoid um, certain certain hurdles. Um, again, it's not out of all the issues, I would definitely not put that at top. Yeah. But I think it is something that we could control. We could communicate with those groups, bring them to the table, have fun with just being creative. Like, how do we think this could work, obviously, with um, your architects, etc. So yeah. that's probably the one thing that moving forward will We'll try to do a better job of. Cool. All right. All right. All right. You ready to talk about parking? Let's do it. Let's do it. Everybody's favorite topic. Brooklyn, <laughs> <laughs> Kansas City. Yeah. So we got into this topic uh, originally by talking about the notion of uh, district parking. Basically, there's there's a few um, districts in, in Kansas City that are entertainment uh, oriented uh, that have. Um, they have a real crunch of activity, uh, you know, evenings and weekends, uh, and growing in popularity, uh, or, you know, some, uh, some like the Westport area have been established in popularity for a long time. And there's, there's always this question in every district about how the hell do you handle parking? Uh, because it seems like there's like infinite demand, uh, for parking is everybody always wants more. Uh, they always want it free. Uh, and, and there's a real question that that always comes up in our public discussions about what to do about all of it. Um, should uh, should the city take on debt and build parking, build parking structures? Should um, should there be different rules or, or management of parking? So we kind of we kind of got into this back and forth that was that was uh, interesting. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways and examples to handle it, stuff that I've seen from other places, stuff that we've all seen. But uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was kind of fun back and forth. So I'll start with I'll put it on Andrew first, because uh, Andrew's I think your position, see if I characterize this right, was basically like, you know, what's the problem? Uh, if, if there's if there's a parking problem, people will figure it out. And there's not really necessarily a role for the city to play, to step in, to subsidize a bunch of uh, new parking supply in some of these areas. What is that? Is that about right? Yeah. I said, just, there's gotta be a pretty high burden of proof before the city should be spending taxpayer dollars on whether there is or is not a problem. I mean, I feel like the one thing I do know is that if the place is so dominated by parking, it can become quite unpleasant and that therefore uh, no one wants to go there. 
because it's unpleasant, right? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of the flip side of, hey, it's really crowded here. So something's working. <laughs> and to what extent is there trade-offs that if you were to, uh, you know, increase the amount of surface parking, are you kind of destroying some of the thing that makes that a pleasant and popular place to go to? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I know even in Kansas City, hey, if, if I can find a surface lot or a park on the street, that's probably preferable to a garage because a lot of times this discussion is around garages. Yeah. Um, but at the same, there's just a geometric contradiction between space for parking and space for other productive uses. Yeah. I'm going to ask this question with the caveat that I'm pro mixed use and pro density. I think the best neighborhoods and cities have multiple modes of transportation uh, to get from point A to point B. All that being said, and sorry for the non Kansas City listeners, but Andrew, you had referenced districts, neighborhoods that are not pleasing because of excess parking. Can you give can you give examples of of that if you're willing to? Uh, I mean, I think it just you look at any of these suburban shopping centers that have giant parking lots, and there's mm-hmm. there's plenty of excess parking, right? I mean, uh, it's it's almost like just look at the evidence in front of your eyes. If there's a lot of people somewhere, enough people that parking has become a complaint, well, something is going right, right? Lack of traffic or lack of people is not, well, lack of traffic in particular is not a sign of success, right? You Traffic is means a scarce, a scarce resource space mm-hmm. is being fully utilized. So I guess the question I would always have is if you're going to be introducing parking, what's your goal? Is it that that will bring even more people and even more business there? That could be accurate, right? But what are you, what are you really trying to achieve by building more parking? Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know if 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 there's a at least a recent study that would prove this out. But I think the ultimate question is: we obviously want districts to be successful. We want districts to be able to not only service the folks who live in and around those districts, but also be attractive enough for folks to be willing to come to those districts from outside the neighborhoods whether that be public transportation, walking, biking, and we live in America mm-hmm. by car. So to me, the working backwards a bit, the question is if a successful district is not providing the amount of parking to maximizing the amount of parking in which the numbers of folks who want to come to that district would be able to utilize is that diminishing? In other words, are we losing customers as a district because we're not providing enough parking for the folks who actually want to want to come down? Right. If 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 the answer is we don't know, then pivoting away from status quo, at least for a city, and most American cities are like this, for a city that is heavily auto dependent that is a risk as a business owner, as a property owner, 
um, not talking from a not talking from an urbanist perspective, folks who believe, and I think at least to some degree, rightfully so, in density of multiple modes of transportation, but your risk pivoting from status quo to be one of the cool kid neighborhoods and cities, right? Yeah, right. And and folks need to make money to stay in business. On the other hand, if to Andrew's point, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew. The more pe- people beget people, irrelevant of parking, right? Folks are going to figure that out. Now, there's a question of legality, you know, how people utilize space. If if folks are going to get ticketed for utilizing the space in, in, a, in a legal fashion, so on and so forth. But that aside, to me, that is the ultimate question. I think the way people come at it, because of lack of information is this is status quo. This is what's been seen to work. We're not going to pivot away from, from that unless shown otherwise. And I think that's logical. Yeah. Yeah. And especially since, um, <clears throat> you know, certainly in our city and in most cities in our country, the overwhelming majority of people getting going anywhere are doing it in a car. Uh, and, uh, so I think to me, this is kind of like that ultimate question, knowing that that's the reality. It's a question of, do you try to provide for that and at what cost and what's the opportunity cost maybe that's lost by taking a section of a block or, or a block and building a, a large parking structure, uh, versus not doing it. Like you said, does, does not having it, is it inhibiting the growth and development uh, of an area? And I think you can see examples here locally where people can argue both sides of that. Um, so, it, it's, so it's a funny thing here too, because we have, I think one of the things that that impacts this discussion psychologically in Kansas City in ways that we don't always uh, think about is that we have Country Club Plaza, and which is a unique, uh, it's a unique development. Um, and it, you know, it's over a hundred years old. It's a hundred years old actually this year, but um, it, it was built originally to be one of the first, uh, quote unquote, suburban shopping centers, uh, in the country, uh, when suburban really meant something different than it does today. But it basically meant that it was built with the idea that a lot of people would drive there, uh, instead of taking the streetcar or whatever else. And, um, over time that changed and it developed, it became much more urban, uh, and, it's sort of our second downtown right now, but the country club plaza itself is a sing is owned by a single entity. And that entity also owns all the parking. Mm -hmm. And so they've built a variety of parking garages over many, many decades that are all owned by one entity. And so there is in fact, like this coordinated parking management plan by default because it's all singularly owned. Uh, and so the off street parking in those garages is free. Uh, and, uh, it really encourages people to park and use those garages. Uh, they're all well done and really well integrated into the area, uh, visually. Um, and, and people just generally know that there's a lot of parking down there. Although I, I think we probably all have friends who still complain that there's like nowhere to park sure. on the bus, <laughs> which yeah, is kind of sure. crazy. So like that impacts the mindset because we have that historic example, which has been around forever. And then we don't really have a history of like proactive thinking about parking in our other urban districts. Uh, it's all been 
um, very haphazard uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's true. And I would, I appreciate the example of the plaza. I would, I would, I would add this and this statement is not meant to be a universal statement. It depends mm-hmm. on what market, what city you're, you're referencing. But again, using the example of the city that we have chosen to live in and, and work in, it seems to me that these are not necessarily mutually exclusive things. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm pro bike. I'm pro public transportation. But we also must live in a reality that even as we build out that in Kansas City, and I'm sure our process is similar to our peer cities like Cincinnati, et cetera. As we build out those public transportation options, people are still going, the majority of people are still going to drive irrelevant of what we what we would like that's just that's the reality we live in and so i i would i would state respectfully that that since that is an since that is an expectation for the majority of folks in our city in most american cities i imagine we need to provide some semblance of safe effective parking now, the degree as to what we provide, whether it's parking garages, surface parking, beautification of X, Y, and Z, that could also be a conversation that's more nuanced. But at the end of the day, I don't... I think the question was, when you say we should provide this parking, it's who's we. Uh, the specific thing we kicked off on is when does the city have the responsibility or the duty to kind of step in and say, we're going to provide a district parking solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing if uh, a singular owner like the country called Plaza wants to build parking for their tenants, makes sense. They're internalizing those costs. Um, it makes sense if a group of business owners want to get together and in a private sector solution, provide a parking. It's like, when does the city have a basic interest in providing parking and w- of what sort? And I think that's where I was saying the burden of proof should be pretty high before the city comes in and builds parking. I'm not saying don't drive. I'm saying that generally the market is pretty effective at solving that problem without a master planned solution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, let's take our, our, our river market neighborhood where heart of it is the city market, the farmer's market, very popular, especially one time a week yeah. on nice yeah. weekend Saturdays. Uh, I mean, nice summer Saturdays. Uh, get your best but how much, yeah, I mean, how much parking do you build in a neighborhood to serve that six months of the year, one day a week type function uh, versus other more productive uses for that same parking that could be there and providing value mm-hmm. 24-7? So, uh, I mean, Kansas City is also a, like many other cities, a great example of how many buildings, historic buildings have been torn down for surface parking. And I think at least people have felt all right, that was a mistake. That was not something to be duplicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this does come down, you know, further to structured parking, right? And going like, at what point do you throw up garages? Um, and I you know, I think it's a valid concern, but it's 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 who does it? Is it private sector? Is it public sector? Uh, there's a bit of a tragedy of the commons element to this whole thing, where any given small business owner certainly has the incentive to externalize their parking requirements onto somebody else. 
Um, but you know, if you're doing that, that maybe means that the the district as a whole suffers because people are you know putting down surface parking instead of what could be a nice, attractive destination. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking on the nuance of, of different parking approaches. I think the worst element for a multitude of reasons is surface parking. I think if, if a district, if a city can avoid surface parking, they should, particularly if you want dense urban neighborhoods, mm -hmm. parking garages, I think can be tackled effectively. Problem is they don't pay for themselves. Parking almost never, well, you could charge, sure. will never pay the construction costs. So we are talking about public subsidy here in a city owned garage. Yeah. Or at least that's been Except our experience for. here. Uh, in, in other markets, that's probably not true, especially <clears throat> much more urban, much denser markets where there's limited land supply. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a huge challenge in Kansas City because it's, it's, there's only so much you can charge for parking here. Uh, but people are actually willing to pay. Um, so I think one of the things I, I told you guys about was my uh, example in, in Savannah, where uh, they they did basically a parking strategy first in the 90s. And uh, for the <clears throat> for the downtown of Savannah, which is a, a historic downtown, not exactly like a ton of land available uh, or empty land available. Uh, but the city basically had a strategy there where they they uh, owned and or built five uh, public parking, uh, structures and, uh, basically spread out, uh, in different quadrants of the downtown. And then, uh, what they, and then these are actually city owned. Uh, it's managed by a department of city government. And then they lease spaces. They, they make a certain number of spaces available to customers just shopping in the downtown. Um, but, and at a, at a, fee you have to pay. Uh, but then there's a, a whole bunch that they lease to long-term users. So they there are hotels and apartment buildings and office buildings that lease spaces in these city-owned garages, and then people just walk back and forth uh, to them. Uh, and that has, I don't know at what point it became profitable. That probably was not a, a positive uh, revenue situation uh, or net income originally. But at some point within the last 10 or 15 years, it basically spins off profit um, that the city uses to fund other things, other transportation. Um, when you worked there, did you have any good data on utilization? Like were they actually yeah. pretty heavily Yes, they're very, trafficked? Heavy, very heavily used. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually did a new parking plan. Uh, this must have been uh, about 2017 or so. They did a new parking plan that uh, Nelson Nygaard and Associates uh, did. Uh, that was uh, the goal really of that plan was to reevaluate uh, on-street parking and to start to apply some of the Don Shoot principles to on-street parking, which is basically that you charge uh, a market rate uh, mm -hmm. for the parking and different rates per hour, depending on the location and desirability of it. Uh, but as part of that study, they did some great, um, research and had great data on the utilization of the garages, which is very high. Um, now they're very high because it's a very dense and desirable downtown. 
with limited other options. I think there was one other privately owned parking garage in downtown. And most of the new construction that happened for a number of years did not actually build new parking, uh, even hotels, because they would lease spaces from these other garages. Uh, I think that's changed in the last five plus years or so. Some of the newer hotels uh, and others have started to build some of their own parking uh, or a substantial amount in some cases of new parking to go with them. Could that be a lack of supply in those garages or? Yeah, I think it, I think it, what happened is the city owned garages. Yeah. just got, got so full. got full mm-hmm. and uh, there was not a new supply. And so, uh, and th- so then there were, that led to a whole series of discussions that we used to have about how to deal with that. And, um, that, that was a, un- again, this is a bit of a unique case in, in American cities in that you had a really thriving, uh, walkable downtown with, with very little land that could be built upon for uh, new structures or certainly a new parking garage. Like one of the discussions we had was um, we ought to be taking some of the cheap land uh, on the edge of town or a couple miles away, or in this case, across the river and just build surface parking there and, um, have people shuttle back and forth. Uh, and so, uh, and, and in the case of like hotel guests, there could be like a valet component. You drive up to your hotel, they valet it and they valet it at the cheap parking, uh, where land is cheap across the river or something like that. Uh, so I, I always bring up that example in Savannah because it's an, it's a, it was a, one of the better examples I've seen. And there are there are plenty of cities who do parking management like that or do some proactive parking. It's one of the better I've seen that was really thinking about district parking and did it in a way that made financial sense. Uh, whether that could be done in our city or not, I don't know. I think that would be the challenge. Like if, if we built, let's say, for example, there was a new 500-car garage built in Westport uh, today, would would the revenue from the parking there actually pay the costs of building it and managing it. I doubt it. I don't think, I think it'd be hard pressed to see if it would today. But isn't there a 500 car garage already in Westport? There is a large garage. And And how used is it? It's poorly utilized. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of before you double down on. Uh Yeah. I mean, I, I love a lot of what you're saying. I'm not anti, definitely not anti driving your car because I think Shamari is entirely right about how people are going to get around. It's what is that tipping point or what is that signal from the market that, okay, it's time to step in and yeah. do something in a more coordinated fashion? Because what a district strategy helps do is solve that coordination issue where every person who wants to develop or redevelop or mm-hmm. historic rehab something doesn't have to figure out for themselves, oh my gosh, how am I going to park this? There's a ready-made solution there. So I, I'm, I'm, I could be for it as long as there's like, City saying, if we build this garage, okay, developers, you can't build your own parking, or we don't want you to build your own parking, or some kind of stick or carrot to say, you know, we've solved that for you. Now make that. Don't don't no, use, use it, it for useless parking. Right. Use us. So, the 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 two things I was going to follow up with, um, from a parking perspective, we we have to remember that even though plaza parking is free. When you purchase an item on the plaza, we all pay yeah. for that parking. Absolutely. So so they have, and I don't know if there are other districts who have that same mechanism. Maybe they do. I'm just not familiar. 
But we do have to recognize that it's not always, quote unquote, the public sector coming in and shoring up the cost of parking. There are other, or the opposite end, it's just a straight, hey, I'm parking, I'm paying to park in this garage. I think that's what the garage in Westport, I think that's Mm -hmm. their setup. If I remember correctly, I never park in there, so. Uh, Because <laughs> uh, you ride your bike. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, um, and then it, the second one is, again, getting back to, and hate to put on the, the kind of dirty capitalist hat, right? But. Business owners, property owners, they are looking to maximize how many folks that they can attract to said place. So, again, given our market, you want people to be able to walk there, bike there, take public transportation and drive there. And I think when you talk about parking, when done correctly, you're maximizing the folks who you know are going to come there by auto. Yeah. Right. Now that doesn't negate attracting folks who are coming there by other means. And again, I don't I don't think that these are mutually exclusive things. I think for the most part, a district can do both, but we can't forget that most of the goal is to maximize how many folks that you're going to attract to said place. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have parking, at yeah. least in KC and most American cities. Yeah, we want these places to be successful first and foremost. And that involves getting people down there. And I think the other thing that kind of hangs in our mind a lot, at least probably the three of us and, and others who have experienced in the city is our experience the last 20 years or so with like the crossroads area, uh, which has become a wildly popular entertainment area. Uh, and yet we've, there's really been um, no strategy for parking at all. It's been kind of like, here's a new project that comes along. We're going to subsidize a garage for that project that garage might be empty 60% of the time, uh, but there's no management strategy at all for the area. So that, I mean, there's actually all a physically a large amount of parking that's down there, but how much of it is ever really accessible to the public or to people coming down there? And the same thing downtown, you know, a lot of it just sits empty uh, all the time. Uh, and then other times it's really full depending on what the use is. So I've, I've kind of always talked about there's like the uh, there's the difference between like the design uh, side or the policy side and the actual management side. And I think one thing lacking uh, just tremendously when we think about this is, is just management. How are we managing our existing inventory or future inventory so that it's used uh, and so that, you know, you get the financial uh, benefit of building it. Yeah, I, I lived in the crossroads. Shoot, I, I rented from Andrew for a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, love the crossroads. Love living there. Love hanging out there. Um, had a good old time. I, I would have to admit that I never, I rarely, some first Fridays, sometimes when there was a big concert downtown, I rarely found parking to be an issue, even though, to your point, Kevin, I think the majority of people would say that 
there was a lack of parking despite seeing empty parking lots yeah. in the neighborhood eight times out of 10 uh, that are quote unquote open to the public. Although I think most of them you have to pay for as well. I think again, it's, 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 it's the measure of nuance in living in reality, right? So we can say, yes, there's plenty of parking in the crossroads. I would not disagree with that. But when you get down into how, how people approach it, how they live it, we're seeing parking maybe four or five, six blocks from where they're trying to go. For most Americans, that's not tenable. Yeah. They're, they're not, they would, they're just going to go to that strip mall that Andrew had reference had reference earlier. And so there are all these, there are all these nuanced elements that, that we have to accept uh, in, in, in the current marketplace that hopefully we can get to a point where the majority of people can see that parking six blocks, no big deal. New Yorkers do it all the time. Why can't we? But that's not our. That's not the, the current reality we live in. But the, the reality is that in the crossroads, you never have to walk six blocks, never. And this is where psychology really comes into it, right? Because you drive down there, and I would say nine times out of ten, you like park right outside the front door <laughs> of wherever you're trying to go. But it's the one time when you couldn't that kind of sticks in your mind when you're thinking back on, do I want to go down to the crossroads? And the same thing I think happens with small business owners as well, where nine times out of 10, their, their customers have zero problem parking. But the one person who complains because they had to park a little bit too far away, mm-hmm. that's what sticks in their mind. And I want to ask, like, how much should our decision making be driven by those one-off anecdotal stories as opposed to the reality of, you know, most of the time it's actually not that big a deal. There's got to be some tipping point, whether it's six blocks or something else where it starts to make sense. Um, but it does feel often in these discussions where uh, anything to do with cars, you know, it's how do you frame it, right? Like I might say, we're moving from a society which is 100% dedicated to the needs of car owners to one that's 95%. But if you're you know, one of those people who's on the strong car side, you might say, going from 195 feels like pain. And I want to make this clear. <laughs> I am not on the strong car side. I, right. want, to make that, I want to make that perfectly, but perfectly I do think clear business to our owners, listeners at home. I think a lot of business owners, <laughs> God love them. Like you, you're right. They want to maximize their revenue. Um, but I'm not sure how accurate they have of a picture of how their clients get to their front door. Yeah. I don't. Right. Cause they I, don't, I, I, I they're not doing scientific studies out there. They're, they're just seeing who comes in and who complains. I, th- I think what you're, I think what you're saying is true. But again, their lived experience is they drove more than likely to their business yeah. to work. Their customers mainly are driving to their business. If they're active in their personal lives, when there's a civic conversation about bike infrastructure. And public transportation. Guess what? Most of those people who are going to those meetings drove. Well, right? and they, right? they hear from their employees too, right? Employee parking is often the understated current of a lot of this stuff. Is mm-hmm. where do I? Where do my five baristas park, and how mm-hmm. far do they have to walk? Sure, and what's the safety and, sure. and so on and so forth. So I, I do not disagree whatsoever in 
wanting to support progressing into a more multimodal city and neighborhoods. But said business owners, said property owners are attempting to maximize their space, mm -hmm. are attempting to attract the most folks to come frequent their place. Parking is baked in to that desire. Again, how you do it, how it gets paid for, I, I do think I do think that that's a fair conversation. And I think there are already examples in the market that show whatever whatever is happening within that district in that neighborhood, you could tackle it in a in a specific way. What I what I don't what I don't agree with is taking those options off the table. I think they all should be discussed. And I think it's up to the stakeholders, it's up to the business owners, and for that matter, up to the, the patrons who frequent said places to say, this is how we interact with this space. And this is how it could be best moved forward when it comes to all of the options to get to said place. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I you know, I have to just add as the, as the designer uh, in the room, that um, the actual design of the environment matters a lot too. And uh, I think one of the, one of the reasons that people are more inclined to park and walk a few blocks, like on the plaza is because it's just a really nice place to, to walk around. The garages are pretty small by compared to modern garages. Um, and they all have, um, you know, stairways that go out onto a street that is attractive to walk along. Uh, and uh, they integrate well into the environment. So you're not looking at big, ugly parking garages. And I think that has a lot to do with it as well. It's just like subtle things that actually encourage people to use it. Um, I also wonder when you made the comment about safety, um, that's probably not something that we think about as much like the three of us, but a lot of people a lot of other people think put that high on their list. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I wonder what the, how different the dynamic would be if people feel like that the area that there's not going to be a, not a concern for safety at all. And the, the willingness to walk five, six, seven, eight blocks. But it know. can cut both ways, right? Where it's like, if you have more parking in the form of surface parking, mm -hmm. and so you're walking two blocks, but you're walking two blocks past quiet nobody around surface parking yeah that could be seen as more dangerous than walking through an area that's full of people right because you're not dedicating half of your usable land space to parking yeah so i, I, <laughs> I, I don't disagree with that and that's why i had reference parking structures as opposed to surface parking i think right. there's a whole host of reasons to support parking structures over surface parking parking structures can be utilized for more than parking a lot of parking garages have commercial retail or offices on the first floor to Andrew's point, it creates more density and therefore more safety. When you're walking past those blocks, they could be integrated into the built environment. To your example, the plaza, you're parking there, you walk out. No one thinks twice about the fact that they just walked past a, a garage that looks no different than the other buildings that have retail or mm -hmm. um, restaurants. So I, uh, I think it could be done intelligently. 
I think it could be it could be done in which some of the costs are are spread out amongst parties. I'm not saying it's easy, but well, you brought up community improvement districts, that kind of concept. Would or you biz- write it off? No, you brought that up. I think it's a good example, like a business improvement district where it's essentially mm-hmm. the district itself funding parking as opposed to just yep. being a, a citywide yeah. kind of cost. I mean, I, yep. I guess that's sort of the plaza model. Yeah, in a sense. If I'm not mistaken. In a sense, yeah. 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 All right. So have we beaten the parking horse to death? One, well, one last thing. One last thing. All right. Sorry. I, and I, I got know a, Andrew wants one to more add. too, yeah. All right. So, so your, your strip mall in the suburbs, at the end of the day, for, for a metro like ours, I would imagine 90 some odd percent of the folks who are going to set places as nice as they may be are folks who live in those metros. Mm-hmm. You're not getting, you're likely not getting tourists, folks who are in town for business, so on and so forth. The ideal condition in, in my mind, when it comes to being able to get from point A to point B is have quote unquote, beautiful parking in um, your district of interest that more than likely those are folks who live around your neighborhood of interest and live in the metro. But then you also want folks to be able to walk and bike there for whatever reason who also live in the metro. And then finally, public transportation or for that matter, make it easy for Uber drivers, et cetera, to get to your Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. for tourists, for folks visiting your city. That's how you maximize your space in your district. So layering and being intelligent on all three slash four of those items, I think is paramount. Yeah. But I, but I don't think you can, at least for cities like ours, I don't think you can ignore any of them. I think you really have to tackle all of them to have a truly successful district and neighborhood. Yeah. And we didn't really talk about Uber uh, at all in this discussion, but you know, those type of services are increasingly become the way that people get at least to entertainment uh, and evening entertainment. And pretty much most people younger than us, that's how they're getting to and from weekend entertainment, et cetera. And so uh, that's, that's a game changer as well for transportation across the board. Sure. Yeah. Andrew. Well, just one thought. I mean, I think the positive move has been to move away from parking mandates, right? Parking mm-hmm. mandates, bad, because that's making somebody do something, but not, in a sense, helping them or mm-hmm. guiding them Agreed. or coordinating them. And towards the, the district solutions that you guys were talking about, where it is more of a conversation amongst the business owners and stakeholders and residents of a neighborhood to come up with something intelligent. Um, so fewer parking mandates and more district solutions, planning solutions, seems like a positive uh, evolution in the parking discussion. Yeah, agreed. All right, we agree. All right, what else? You guys got anything else you wanna talk about? Anything else you wanna cover today? No, we wanna talk about publicly? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the issue. (laughs) Where should the Royals ballpark be put? Where should the Royals go? Wow. Let's see. Do we have another hour? Right. No. (laughs) I'll jump in. Why not? Sure. Go for it. I'll just, I'll I'll say this. Maybe not give an opinion, although what I'm about to share, folks could probably uh, 
surmise where, where my opinion lies. The vast majority of Major League Baseball stadiums are downtown or downtown adjacent. Before Kaufman was built, our baseball stadium, well, actually, it was a multi-use stadium. Mm -hmm. The stadium was on 22nd in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. yeah, actually in, in the Vine District, or Vine District adjacent. Streetcar ran by there, so on and so forth. So if people want to look historically at where our athletic stadiums were located, they were in the city. Mm -hmm. From a long-term perspective, Kaufman is the exception and, and, and not the rule. We're just getting back to what was the rule pre, I think Kaufman opened in what, 72? If I remember correctly. Some, Something like that. Late 60s, early, yeah. early 70s. So we've done this before. Mm -hmm. Other cities have done this before. And they're not all New York and, and Boston. Mm -hmm. Cities that are our size have done this before. Everything will be fine. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Well, I would agree. I mean, it's when you look at it from a comparative perspective, it's hard to think of an area where a city has built a ballpark that's well located, adjacent to other uses in their downtown that isn't either like totally thriving or just looks really healthy. Mm -hmm. And that's not how I would describe the area around the stadiums to date. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a genuine question about what taxpayers should be responsible for versus the team. But, and I think there's also genuine discussion around the economic impacts of these stadiums. Um, but it's hard to see a, like a, like a bad story or a bad outcome. Yeah. So I, I mean, the bad outcomes are the ones where it's not well located. I mean, I walked like 45 minutes from Milwaukee's baseball stadium mm. through industrial parking lots to get back to my hotel one night. Um, you know, that's not a success story. Uh, you know, really it's, it's the ones that are downtown that kind of stick in your mind as really thriving. Yeah. There's been a handful built in the last 30 years that were quote unquote downtown, but, uh, really not downtown sites. So Milwaukee's one, the old, um, Fulton County Stadium, Atlanta, yeah, Atlanta was really cut off from downtown by the freeways. Um, but most of the other new ones were really well done and uh, on good sites, either right in or close to uh, a downtown. Um, so, I mean, I'm an urban baseball guy. I would love to see the stadium in the urban area. I'm not, I, I'm not so dyed in the wool that I think it has to be right downtown. I think there are a lot of places, I, you know, your example, the old municipal stadium at 22nd in Brooklyn. I mean, I, I think there are sites like that all around the downtown that would be really cool. Uh, my own personal preference, I just felt like from a, from a big picture standpoint for Kansas City, since we're investing all this money in the streetcar and it's the only real public transportation we have of any substance, that could move a lot of people that I feel like if we're going to, especially if we're going to spend public money on a new baseball stadium, yes. it needs to be right near the streetcar as close to it as we can possibly get so that uh, we can take advantage of that. So uh, that's what I have leaned towards. 
and uh, I think there's a great site at Linwood in Maine for anybody <laughs> listening. Uh, but maybe actually two two pretty great sites at Linwood in Maine. Uh, but a lot of room for parking. A lot of room for parking. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It all beautiful, comes beautiful parking. It all comes back together. <laughs> I, do you, do you think in a different world, in an ideal world, where the Royals brass did not have to ask the general public for the extinction the extension of the sales tax to help them move forward? Let's say it was all privately funded. Mm-hmm. Do you think folks would be as up in arms about it moving? Let's just call it the urban core. No, depending on where they where they go. Do you think they'd be as up in arms? Do you think I, I, I tend to think that sometimes the conversation is really about the the public financing piece and not necessarily the location, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that that probably blunts a lot of the criticism. The fact that we're being asked to pay for uh, some portion or a large portion of it. That there, I think there are going to there's an, a certain amount of people who would not like it no matter what. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's the public financing piece that really people focus on um, because it's a it's an enormous investment. It's a, these stadiums, uh, like if we go back to the original municipal stadium, those were much smaller stadiums uh, that were built uh, pretty inexpensively, and the modern stadiums are elaborate temples uh, to sports that are incredibly expensive to build. And they're all now building in entire entertainment portfolios as part of the stadium. Mm-hmm. So within within the footprint of the stadium and then around it. And so these are not just ballparks anymore. Uh, like if you look at the new one in Atlanta that they built uh, out in Cobb County, uh, it's an entire district that they built as part of the stadium and and most of the new stadiums i'm like my god look at the new football stadiums like the one in la Mm -hmm. and they're built to be entertainment palaces that can serve multiple purposes and not just the the sports team anymore Uh, so it's it's a different deal and because of that now they're just outrageously expensive um so if i remember right wasn't um what used to be pac bell or field in san francisco wasn't that that was all built privately i think it was yeah as well as the uh, football stadium for better for worse in santa clara yeah that's right um but but that that, (laughs) those go against it is a different market (laughs) in the bay area slightly different (laughs) slightly different uh capital uh yeah yeah no doubt power i so we jumped into it so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna going to continue. Um, it seems like the the entertainment district model from, let's call it, the mid-aughts till, till now, in hindsight, might be a dated model. Yeah. So I'm going to make one question from that and then and then make a statement of clarity that the sales tax being asked in in jackson county is a continuation of what we already have so we're all all of us that live that live in the county we're all paying for that already so the royals are simply asking you to 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 continue that right right so 
I just want to make that point clar clarity because I think there's a lot of confusion on that. Sure. But back to to the other question slash statement. What do you believe, particularly since you're in the design space, the planning space? Maybe the entertainment district model is now dated. And maybe um, the opportunity for leadership, whether it be here or other cities who might get an expansion team or, or thinking about building new stadiums. What is the new model for the future? What is the opportunity to maybe utilize existing structures? We were talking about parking, lean more into public transportation, as you referenced, uh, biking, walking, etc. cetera. Uh, what are folks not talking about? What are folks not looking at that you think could set us up better for the future as compared to as compared to other uh, baseball stadiums? I, I mean, it's I think the challenge is it's the economics of the sports that have changed to have uh, the newer stadiums become much more entertainment focused. So um, because um, they're the owners of the teams uh, are looking to generate revenue in ways that they they're looking to generate unrestricted revenue. So like in football, they have a salary cap. So they're always looking to maximize revenue that is outside the salary cap and baseball doesn't have a hard salary cap, but they have something similar. Uh, and the revenue that they can generate um, through other uses, they can apply back to the team uh, and use that to stay competitive. And that's one of the challenges like the Royals have. Um, the Royals don't have any of that extra revenue in some of these newer stadiums they do. So that's like a, it's like an arms race uh, amongst all these teams to try to find ways to make more money uh, that they can apply back to the team. And, and so that's why like in Atlanta there, and, and, you know, they did this in St. Louis with Bush stadium uh, with Cordish building uh the entertainment district right next to Bush stadium. Sure. Um, that was all about generating more revenue uh, for the Cardinals basically. So uh, the easy look for that has been, um, you know, the party atmosphere, um, whether that going forward, I don't know. I don't know how many entertainment districts a city like ours can support. Right. Um, it seems to me like it might be better to think of it more as like residential areas uh, that have a entertainment component to it. You know, like the older, the, the classic older example we all know is Wrigleyville in Chicago, which really is just a neighborhood. It's just a neighborhood in Chicago. And then it, it always had a few bars around the stadium, but over time it's become more and more of like an entertainment area um, as the nature of, the, of baseball has changed. Mm. But it really was just a neighborhood. Uh, and I, I think for a team like the Royals, the opportunity to place themselves in a neighborhood and maybe if they want to own real estate and do something else, maybe that real estate is more residential. Maybe it's urban residential uh, with some mixed use component to it. I don't know. Um, right. I, I don't know how much money there is in owning a bunch of sports bars. I, I don't know. Seems like the uh, you know Japanese rail station model, right? Yeah. Where the railroad yeah. doesn't make any money on the railroad itself, but because so many people are coming in and out of its main stations, you know, that's where they built the shops and the hotels and, yeah. but they capture all that revenue from the traffic 
Yeah. As opposed to mm-hmm. know, coming through. It, it's, yeah. it, it seems to me, and one thing I think folks who are interested in this conversation are missing, I think there's going to be a comp that other local teams are going to look at, and that's the KC Current who mm-hmm. uh, are opening up their stadium in uh, March of 2024. Um, near, I think the, Near the streetcar. Yeah. Near yeah. the streetcar, for sure. Um, I think the utilization of the stadiums for more than just sports is the future. And I think that's what Andrew was, was getting at. Mm-hmm. Concerts is an, is an obvious one, but I think right. most stadiums still do that. I think about Petco Park, which I'm not a Padres fan whatsoever, but you could you can go up to that stadium most of the time and their outfield um, is open. It's it's like it's literally like a park. It's an it's a beautiful setting. It's, it's gorgeous. Awesome. It's, yeah. it, that's my that's my favorite baseball stadium, and utilizing that and then maybe having some bars and restaurants in the stadium mm-hmm. open for folks who live near there, like you were, like yeah. you were referencing. I think um, there are fans of teams all around the country, if not the world, I can see, uh, I can see folks traveling here. If Royals hall of fame was open most days of the week, just going in there, getting some drinks and some food, hanging out. Yeah. If they have a playground for kids, doing that, just a full utilization of the stadium yeah. on most days of the week. That's not just baseball. I think is, yeah. I think should be looked at more um, seriously. And that's the sort of thing that's never going to happen where they are now at the Truman sports complex. Right. Like, you don't drive no, literally nobody drives out there to go see the Royals hall of fame uh, because it's in, in the middle of nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, there, and I think that's why a lot of teams want to be, want to either be in an urban area where they uh, can build off of other activity or they want to do like what the Braves did, which is create their own thing in, uh, in a higher end suburban area. Uh, but they're creating their own sort of complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I still wouldn't put it past the Royals to do that here. I wouldn't put it past them to go to Johnson County and create their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like Westwood, <laughs> not Westwood. <laughs> I saw that drawing. That was that was brilliant. Uh, I would love that because I could walk to the stadium. But um, yeah, I mean, I think if if again, if they were just ruthless baseball team owners, they would probably look at sites in Johnson County uh, where they could create something unique because that's where most of their season ticket base is. Um, but uh, they seem to have a genuine interest in being in downtown or the urban core, you know, adjacent to downtown. Uh, and, uh, so I think they'll end up landing there, but who knows? Yeah. Just to play devil's advocate. I think, um, one of the reasons why most teams decide to put their stadiums in downtown outside of a lot of markets are dense and have really expensive real estate. Uh, and so the ability to move is, more difficult than it would be here, but it's the tourist dollars. It's, it's, it's much more difficult. Most tourists are staying downtown or, or, or or near downtown. Right. It would be much more, it's more difficult now to get to the current stadium. Uh, It would be equally as difficult for, for someone who's visiting Mm -hmm. to go to a stadium in, in Johnson County, whereas it'd be downtown or downtown adjacent, even, even North town. You could bike, 
yeah. there. You could walk there. And you the streetcar street may go there eventually. That's right. And so I think I think I think part of the formula also has to be for the folks who don't live here and and are attending the games or whatever event. Mm-hmm. How easy is it gonna be for them to go? And I think it makes it much easier to do that when you're in a dense environment and yeah. have multiple modes to to get there. Yeah. I mean, where they are now is a disaster for a baseball team. For a football team, it's different. They have eight home games a year, plus maybe a preseason game or two. And, uh, and they have 80,000 people. And so it's a different deal, but for a baseball team, it's a disaster to be where they are. Uh, And it's also been clearly proven over time that there's little real estate value for them to develop something around the Kauffman stadium where it is now. Mm-hmm. So they, they have to find a better site. Uh, and uh, I, I'm an urban person, so I want it in the city. Um, and I, I hope they land in the city. But um, uh, it, it's kind of a – it all feels very much up in the air at the moment. Mm. What's your – so this is not a question about your favorite team. Yeah. This is just strictly stadium and the location that the stadium is in. What is your favorite stadium that you visited? Well, I, I'm very partial to the two historic parks, Fenway Park and, and Wrigley Field. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm highly partial, especially to Fenway. I just absolutely think Fenway's amazing in every respect. Um, and not just because I did some work on it years ago. But, <laughs> uh, but I just think Fenway, hurt. Fenway to me is just the ultimate um, historic or traditional ballpark of the new ones um that is a good question i haven't visited all of them um i've been to a number of them you know i I always thought coors field was done really well in denver Uh, and part of it was because it was actually that's really like the edge of downtown Uh, and uh, it was very cleverly designed to create street traffic and and create activity in lodo um, in that area uh, and it, it fits in brilliantly. Uh, Camden Yards is incredible. I mean, that was the original of the new ballparks, and um, it, it does a wonderful job in Baltimore. Um, so I don't know. I haven't been to the stadium in Pittsburgh or Cincinnati. I'd like to go to the one in Pittsburgh. Um, there's a number of others that I, you know, I've either driven by or, um, or really just kind of seen that way, but I haven't visited all of them. It's been hard to keep up. It's interesting. Like the one in Minneapolis is actually in a lousy location. Hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of disconnected from downtown, but it's right on top of a streetcar. I mean, a it, light rail line. it is, it's right on the light rail line, but it's, it's, it's an odd location. Is it's, it close to target arena? I don't, I don't I think it, it is target. No, you mean where, where the, te- where the yeah, Timberwolves, the, the, Timberwolves play? play, isn't it? It's near there. I think. Okay. But isn't it like it's like across the like on the other side of a freeway or something? It's kind of in this like warehouse district though, yeah. which was getting really hip. Yeah, uh, I do think Minneapolis has gone through some struggles and it's kind of yeah been harder hit the most. But yeah, it's not a bad spot. Yeah. What about you, Andrew? Oh, as much as a diehard Dodgers fan, I hate to admit it, but I think Giants Park, AT and T Field or AT and T Park is with the bay right there. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, and wasn't because that's do- and Petco, dog patch and Petco is that the neighborhood? Too. Yeah. No, Petco is pretty far south. No, well, it's, what's the neighborhood it's in? Uh, Soma, south of Market. Wasn't that 
wasn't that neighborhood considered a little rough before? Yeah, it was like was kind of the industrial area. A lot of tech, I mean, the, a lot of the tech companies from that generation kind of came up in that area. So now it's super duper high end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Petco, Petco is incredible. Petco's incredible. And the, so and PNC Park in in Pittsburgh, I think, is is top top three. Yeah. I, I think too, just I, for the views on the river that I mean a lot of these ones that the way they can use the water. Mm-hmm. Now, Kansas City doesn't really have a great option for that, but it's mm-hmm. too bad because I mean that does definitely add something to Cincinnati, to Pittsburgh, and to uh, San Francisco's yeah. stadium. I think the confluence would be cool. I don't know if we have the ability to build build down there and yeah. uh, the current stadium on the river. I would. I would just close out on this subject matter with this. Um, maybe besides soccer, um, the stadiums and baseball are so related to the teams in the city. I don't. Yeah. I don't feel like footballs like that. I don't feel like our basketball arenas are like that. Like they're yeah. they're almost shrines yeah. for each city. And um, there's a beauty. There's a there's a sense of place in Kansas City that I think the Royals could utilize with their with their new stadium. And to the reference of Pittsburgh or Petco or AT and T, we could have something similar that I think yeah. we're all proud of. But I think it would be more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult to do. That was not in an urban location. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we need to wrap there. Um, I'm getting the uh, I'm getting the cutoff. <laughs> so, Thanks, Kevin. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for uh, for coming in. We'll uh, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, see you in 2024. We'll see everybody in 2024. Thank you all very much. See you guys. Thank you.